I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> E.T. The Extraterrestrial. If you've ever gone back and uh, watched a trailer from a while ago, uh, and check out the comment sections on uh, YouTube, you'll see people say things like, Oh, back when they didn't used to show you everything that happens in the film. Let me tell you, folks, that era never happened. This original 1982 trailer for E.T. literally shows you every story beat of the movie and labels them for you. Enjoy, although you won't hear a bloody thing from the movie. Just some dude. In 1975, he directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T., the Extraterrestrial. Bear in mind, as we're about to go into, this film is a masterclass of visual storytelling. We will witness the arrival the search, the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship. I'm keeping him. The secret, the love, the warning, the signal. The mystery, the danger, the intrusion, the wonderment, the enchantment, the hope, the connection has been made. Then E.T. dies, but it's okay, he comes back again. And then he goes home and everybody's sad. But they're kind of happy, too. Then you go back to the car park. Then you drive home. Then you have an argument about what kind of takeout you're going to have. One of you says you want Mexican. The other says they want burgers. Eventually, you settle on pizza. Even though nobody wanted pizza. And you're not in the part of town with the good pizza joints. You end up at Pizza by Alfredo. It's like eating a circle of hot garbage. The pizza is disappointing. But E.T. won't be. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Narrated entirely by me. Oh no? I'm fired? Fine, I'll get my own trailer with blackjack and hookers. The Steven Spielberg season continues, and returning from our wildly popular Jaws show is Mr. Chris Chipman of Talkbuster, Creating Geeks, Shooting the Shit, and the Tangent Brothers podcast. One of the hardest working people on the internet. Hello again, Chris. Thank you very much for having me back. It's a pleasure. The year was 1982, and as I think we've said before, our parents, and if we're old enough, we ourselves, didn't know how great we had it for cinema. Kind of like how we didn't know how great we had it in 2015. 
In May, we had Conan the Barbarian and Rocky III. In June, we had Poltergeist, Wrath of Khan, E.T., Blade Runner and The Thing. In July, Tron. In October, First Blood and The Last Unicorn. And in December, Tootsie and The Dark Crystal. And from that selection of highest grossing movies, which also included An Officer and a Gentleman, Annie, 48 Hours, Porky's, and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, it was Spielberg's E.T. that topped them all, cementing Stephen after Jaws, after Close Encounters, and after Raiders as an absolute mainstay for family films that weren't safe and sanitized and possessed a danger, a majesty, a sense of authenticity, and an especially extraordinary abundance of love and care in bringing them to the screen. It became kind of a watchword in quality. But nobody thought E.T. was going to be number one at the box office that year. They were scared of the Dark Crystal because Jim Henson and his Muppets were an intimidating prospect and a force to be reckoned with. Everyone thought E.T. would be kind of a kid's matinee for a Saturday morning and that it would be mostly forgotten the way that copycats of E.T., Short Circuit, Batteries Not Included, Mac and Me and Nuki ended up. Some of those did quite well for themselves, isn't there? They're relatively low budgets, but they are not remembered and beloved today like E.T. I think probably the one that's the most is Short Circuit. I don't know. Batteries Not Included made more than Short Circuit. No, but in terms of pervasive memory that sticks with people now. Short Circuit's kind of racist. It is. Okay. (laughs) Wicked racist. (laughs) For me, seeing E.T. at an early age on TV in the mid-80s, I was presented with America, a suburbia in night, day and dusk that kids could walk around in on foot without fear of being run over. They could bike around. It showcased a highly social Halloween that looked like a ton of fun, something that really wasn't done all that much in England back then. And by the way, folks, I grew up in a house out in the middle of nowhere, right next to an incredibly busy, incredibly loud main road. I had to try and go to sleep listening to cars going every single night, and I'm a light sleeper. So, obviously, a suburb was a completely different alien world to me. The California landscape framing an epic set in and around the home. The redwood forests brought Endor to mind, both alien and earthy, with towering trees and curling mists, all accompanied by the amazing music of John Williams. I was able to witness the struggles of a broken family just a few years before mine was similarly rent asunder. Spielberg himself was a teen when his parents split up, and it seemed likely that Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977 was his way of revisiting the feeling of a parent going away. But while that film seems curiously joyful about its protagonist leaving his family behind, this spiritual follow-up five years later left an alien on Earth like an exchange student for this little and broken family to find. And that it precipitated an era when divorce and familial separation was becoming more the norm than the notion of the nuclear family, it's very likely that E.T. helped a lot of people, young and old, through some tough times. Because Crucially Implicit was, despite the deeply melancholy ending, based around having to say goodbye, Elliot, his mom, and his siblings were going to be okay. So, Sharon and Chris, how were your first encounters with E.T.? Mine was less than positive, through no fault of the film. 
the first time I saw this was on video at a uh, a birthday party, and I cried. I can't remember how old I was, but it would have been somewhere in the region of five, six, maybe seven at a push. And I Because was... you're supposed to cry at E.T. Absolutely. Especially if you're a kid. Indeed. Uh, but I was ruthlessly mocked for that fact. And uh, the kids who were also at the party teased me for daring to express emotion in a gathering of people, which taught me a very hard lesson about not doing that again and left me with a slight residual feeling of resentment of the film itself. Although in the intervening years with very careful uh, coaching from my good gentleman here, uh, I have learned to overcome both. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't come and see this in 2002. It was uh, re-released at the cinema and I went with Tony and you and Liz stayed home because you were like, nope, don't want to see that. And probably quite a good idea. We'll be talking about the 2002 20th uh, anniversary re-release later in the show, but uh, that that was not the best version of it. Um, Chris, uh, how was growing up with ET for you? Oh man, so I don't. I'm assuming this is the way it happened um, throughout the whole world. But um, my biggest memory of this movie was that my father had to tape it off of HBO mm-hmm. because you couldn't buy it on VHS. Even when it came out for rental, it was, you know, this was in the time period, specifically with Spielberg and Lucas, where their stuff was even harder to find than when something goes in the Disney vault, right? They just didn't see the benefit in a sale copy. It was a theatrical experience kind of thing. I remember this with Jurassic Park as well. Uh, it was a big deal that it came out like two years after it was in theaters or something like that. I was waiting um, so goddamn long for the video of that. Yeah. I adored Jurassic Park in the cinema. I was like, when? When? And bear in mind, and, um, it, back in, in those days, getting it to the TV took five years. Wow. So like, we would wow. have seen E.T. in 1987. Yeah, so that that's about when I remember seeing it, because mm. um, I was three or four years old. Mm. And because it was a badly recorded VHS copy, I remember the film being a lot darker and muddier than it really is. Mm-hmm. So when I got my Blu-ray copy a few years back, the only real way I had ever seen it, because I, I skipped the 2002 one completely until more recently. Good policy. Um, yeah, um, I was just so angry at that. But we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, but... uh I remember the movie. I mean, Spielberg's known, um, particularly with Close Encounters in this, the the cinematography in both is very similar and the piercing light through fog and through blinds in particular on houses. Mm -hmm. So this movie at three or four years old had a very horror movie effect on me. The, The way I remember the movie were the very horrific images of the silhouetted villains who end up getting more humanized near the end of the film, but, you know, always coming after Elliot. And the, the aliens never scared me. <laughs> and that was yeah. always an amazing thing about the movie is the humans are scary in E.T., not the aliens. And um, that struck me even when I was really little. And And another thing that, you know, I'm sure you guys can see the parallel because you weren't in a in a suburban area is I grew up in a suburban area, but in an old suburban area. So the houses where I grew up, you know, are 100 to 200 years old. So they weren't like this planned community cookie cutter kind of new growth that was happening in California and everywhere else in the tech bubble, like was shown in this movie. So 
for a four-year-old kid, <clears throat> not only is the movie about an alien, alien, but where these people are living was alien to me as well. Like I, I didn't have a sense of community, and it almost feels like Spielberg dialed in on that. Like <clears throat> this family has just gone through a big, you know, the, the father's gone, so they're broken. But also, they don't really seem to fit either. The movie had an alien feel for our planet, whereas the scenes with Elliot at ET always felt more comfortable and homey. Yeah. And it just—it was a weird feeling that struck with me this whole time. So I have very positive memories of this. It's you know your first, uh, your first kind of childhood um, movie that looks at you and goes, "You're a child. You can have real emotions. You can have empathy. You can feel these things." This movie's going to challenge you. Um, and I felt like a lot of the more family fodder at the time didn't really hit on those. So that's those are my original high-level fond memories, VT. They mentioned uh, uh, in the uh, extras that Disney were not doing too well at this point. Obviously, we've, we've um, just kind of come to a plateau in our Disney uh, um, history series. And, uh, yeah, this was like fox and hound time. It was uh, just before the Black Cauldron. It was They were not raking it in at this stage. And, and they were kind of like, well, Walt's dead. I, I guess we could just carry on making movies about mice, dogs, and cats. But... Obviously now, it's hard to imagine because now we're living in an era where it's all about family viewing. It's all about getting everyone into the cinema to eat a friggin' picnic of nachos and uh, and to see the latest 3D animated film uh, or, or a Marvel or a Star War. Uh, but, you know, the kind of stuff that Disney control and DreamWorks and uh, their competitors just kind of like, you know, run after them, you know, comfortably putting out uh, the, the kind of very accessible stuff that isn't going to make people feel like they're too much in pain. E.T. was kind of dangerous because kids were going to walk out crying. You know, they, like they, they, this could have gone the other way where parents were refusing to take their kids to see E.T. because it made them cry. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it was a gamble. And, um, you know, also coming out of the 70s, it still wasn't in that era yet where... It, the stuff which Spielberg kind of precipitated himself, along with, with Lucas and a bunch of other Zemeckis and company, of of this sort of you know new sci-fi family um, dynasty. You know, we were coming out of the seventies, so it was like you know Polanski and and uh, Borman, Peckinpah. That that was the 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 voice of the seventies was dramas and thrillers for adults. So you know, even like the eighties, the the big money spinners were. Things like Pretty Woman and Rain Man and Tootsie was the second highest grossing film of this year. Just get actors and let them act and just do a drama with like maybe a little twist, like it's Dustin Hoffman pretending to be a woman. This was very much kind of like ground zero for... like Obviously, Star Wars was the thing that made things explode, and then you got Indiana Jones in between, but E.T. was a big one for just going, no, no, we can do these things that honestly seem like they are aimed just at kids, but in the Pixar way, parents will really enjoy this. Whereas Raiders didn't seem like it was aimed just at kids, and obviously Star Wars, while it had a massive amount of kid appeal, kind of instantly, like, when you if you watch Star Wars just completely in a vacuum, you'd be like, who was this aimed at exactly? Because... <laughs> It's it's clearly very kid accessible, but then there's the kind of a, a, a rough sexiness to, to Han and Leia and stuff, which isn't necessarily needed for Star Wars. But with with ET, you could just look at it and go, "Well, this is for kids, obviously." But 
you kind of have to let it in as an adult and especially as one of the uh, jaded teenagers from the beginning and the end of the film. And they have kind of a little journey themselves. So one of the first things worth pointing out about this movie and relates to what I was just talking about, it is a world where Star Wars exists. Like, Elliot literally shows E.T. his Star Wars figures, his Kenners. And um, the film is informed upon by many of the creators of Star Wars. You've got Dennis Murin on uh, uh, effects. You've got uh, Ralph McQuarrie designing the spaceship. You've got Ben Burt on sound design for E.T., and uh, it's it's just got that kind of industrial light and magic feel. And, of course, you've got John Williams there just reminding you of this growing world. So what I wanted to talk about was at first was Spielberg's visual storytelling, because if you actually read the script of E.T., it's ages before anyone says anything, and pretty much everything happens visually, and you can tell what's going on that way in a way that almost makes the amount of movies that these days straight up explain themselves way too much seem perfunctory. Mm. It what it kind of made me think of because this you're absolutely right this first stretch is all uh, very visual in terms of how it tells the story and it makes it very accessible to children because there isn't complicated conversation going on. But it it sort of puts me in mind of that old adage about when you're writing a book, try and aim it at an intelligent eight-year-old. And this sort of felt like aiming it at an intelligent, possibly non-verbal eight-year-old. Everything is so clear. There's so many actions and gestures and stances and... and the direct things like the direction the camera is pointing in that evoke a sense of what's going on without anything having to be said, and because it's all dark, you can't even go off facial expressions. Mm. You're not even seeing faces; you're Absolutely. seeing shapes, and then people's midriffs. Yeah, and the sound effects of the aliens' verbalizations, but they're not. Uh, they're not verbalizations in English. They're more like, well, I mean, they would probably be interpreted as being more like animal noises or baby noises. But again, those are sounds which are fundamentally evolved to be meaningful without specificity. Mm. You hear a baby cry, the instinct is to want to respond to it. You, it might take a little while to figure out exactly what the cry means, but you know it means something is in distress and you need to help. So when you get E.T.'s scream, you know that means he's afraid. When you get the uh, the slight down dip in his uh, kind of grunting squeak when the ship starts to take off, you know that means that he is mournful, that he's losing something. You bring up the visual storytelling of this movie. This movie, I, I've said this to people before, almost doesn't need dialogue. You you almost could watch this movie with just mm. the score and get just as much out of it. It is the closest thing to a moving painting of any film I've ever seen that isn't partly animated. Like, right, it evokes the same kind of feelings that Into the Spider-Verse evoked for me, where they're... Spielberg's movies 
often have beautiful cinematography. There's something about this one in particular. It's like it's both at the same time a fantasy world and both at the same time so completely real but only real through the eyes of a child kind of visuals that this movie has that every time I watch it I'm just in awe and and very long takes long exposed shots single shots, single angles obviously because there's a lot of mat work and stuff being done too but god what a beautiful film and it the older I get, the more I appreciate that. People would say, well, that's the reason I don't like it is because not a whole lot happens or is said. But I'm like, I don't think you're getting that film is an experience is all senses. Mm. It's not just someone telling you what's going on. Um, we alluded to this in when we were talking in Jaws about how Chris Nolan is not the visual storyteller that Spielberg is, but he makes beautiful movies. Um, and in doing Interstellar off of a script that was written for Spielberg to kind of fill in the gaps with his visual abilities, the movie kind of fell flat in its need to have exposition. And imagine that served by this visual director, right? Mm-hmm. It, it just no, no contest, in my opinion. Yeah. I, it did occur to me when we were watching one of the extras, which was the one about the music composition, and there was a, a piece in that, a scene where Spielberg and Williams were next to each other, and Williams was at the piano, and he's talking with the keyboard. He's trying to communicate a, a feeling and, and sort of tell Spielberg what he understands this scene to mean, and he's doing it all through the music. And it occurred to me that the reason that these two work so well together is that Spielberg thinks in moving images and Williams thinks in music. And if they can sync those two up together, they capture the bulk of the uh, sensory focus that film feeds. Tell you another advantage of doing something very visually and with music and kind of transcending language, global market. Mm-hmm. This was huge all over the world. That like the the big hits all tend to be something which kind of doesn't get too wordy mm-hmm. because a lot of the time you you know really great scripts sometimes won't translate even if you get them word for word. Yeah, I think there's also an element for the international appeal in the sense that this could have happened anywhere. Yeah, it happens to have happened in California. But it could have happened anywhere because that spaceship could have set down at any point on Mm. Earth and encountered a child and a similar story would have unfolded. Looking at the uh, psychic link that develops between E.T. and uh, uh, Elliot, which, by the way, never gets spoken about. No one ever says that they never like nowadays they would talk at length about the the bond between them it's mentioned very briefly when mike's being interviewed by one of the agents mm-hmm. he talks about how there seems to be a connection between elliot and et mm-hmm. and the agent says so Elliot thinks his thoughts, and he says, no, it's more like Elliot feels his feelings. Okay. But he's, he's not explaining how it works, because he doesn't know. He's just stating what he's observed. But also, this is about an hour and 20 minutes into the film. Oh, yeah. Just after you've seen it in action over and over again. It reminded me of the movie of The Golden Compass, where Pantalaimon, the demon, explained to Lyra that when she gets hurt, he feels it too, as though... As though this wasn't something that uh, uh, children understand from 
immediately as like that they're born with demons and they are very aware like that scene could just very simply Lyra puts her finger into a candle flame and goes ah and Pantaliman mimics her behavior and goes ah what did you do that for just illustrating to any kid watching oh I see so he feels that without having to say it in words that's visual storytelling and they do it in E.T. over and over again that thing with the glowing hearts they, it, you worked out this this morning that um, that's like their intercom system or their, their 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 way of communicating with each other. That it there's a link between their feelings and their actually connecting, mm. which could go some way to explaining why they haven't developed a more complex verbalization. Because yeah. if they all can feel each other's feelings and therefore they don't have to talk about their it. needs, then minimal verbal communication would have to take place. You wouldn't need that specificity. They also don't have to argue about it. E.T. almost never argues with anyone. Mm. He's incredibly placid. Yeah. When the agent's talking to Mike, uh, he's referring to E.T. as it. Ah. And Mike keeps referring to him as he. Mm. But the the point is that he's specifying he is a living creature. You don't call him it. He's not a thing. Yeah. Uh, Now, there's... Clearly, filming techniques that were learned on Jaws and, as, as you said, Chris, refined on Close Encounters because they got very similar. Um, it actually, I didn't see Close Encounters till way later in my life. And as, as a result, I really don't like Close Encounters for several uh, different reasons, as we'll go into in our uh, quick review. The light in the darkness and the, the eeriness of the land around the home that's very much captured in, in Close Encounters. And just, like I say, um, it's kind of perfected here. The, the flashlights in the smoke, uh, the, it, it's, it's visually resplendent of Jurassic Park, which is, you know, t- to me, is the peak of, of, of Spielberg's uh, uh, career. He went into E.T. with confidence wrought from the experience in the 70s. Um, but I also noticed this time uh, Cherry Red Light kind of um, around torches and around headlamps, this kind of halo of red. And you pointed out, Sharon. Uh, Specifically, it's when it is more of an orangey red. Mm. It's reminiscent of that orange glow that the extraterrestrials' hearts give off. And E.T. is drawn to it repeatedly. He's distracted from his collecting samples task and misses his ride home because he's been drawn to the top of the hill to look out at the orange sodium lights Mm. of the houses down below. He finds his way into uh, Elliot's shed because the house has a glowing orange light on the porch which would remind him of that sort of that call to home and when Elliot approaches him it's with a torch that makes it look like it might be a glowing heart absolutely as it's shining through the corn husks it makes it into this sort of glowing orange Mm. rather than the the bright white light of the torch and E.T. is desperate to find someone like him who can take him back to the ship yeah and there are other moments throughout which are a little bit more subtle but generally speaking if you see a glowing reddish orange light that is a signifier of safety and comfort. Mm. I uh, now that you point that out, I see it everywhere in the movie, and it—it's it, one of those things that, like, like you just said about how the movie doesn't have to tell you mm. what's going on with ET and Ellie; it just has to show you. You just have to experience it. That it's one of those things that subconsciously, I think, we all notice in the movie. 
but until I heard it spelled out and said, it's like, wow, that's that's such a cool one, and I I wouldn't I wouldn't have even brought that up. I could, we could be entirely wrong. It could, Stephen might go, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems it seems most significant to me when it's absent. There's um, mainly the parts where the agents have turned up and they've got all of their tents up, and the lights have now become very harsh and white, mm. and there's a lack of that orange glow. We get John Williams' score throughout, and this is one of his absolute best. And if you look at how many different feelings it evokes and how many different moods are in there, it starts off really quite eerie and quiet. It doesn't start with a bang. It's just kind of, just like we're in the forest and this is, you know, there's a coldness to it and it's a little, you know, it's definitely eerie, but it's very understated. It's not dragging you in and going, this is E.T. He's got my back. (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah, then it kind of rises up when E.T.'s walking through the redwoods and the trees are towering over him and it plays... It's kind of a baleful, sad uh, sound to it. It functions at this stage because it, like E.T. is feeling kind of overwhelmed with the plant life here. Obviously, because... That's what E.T. knows, is plants. So these trees are, um, I'm going to guess, quite high for him. And he's very, very small. Mm. But that piece of music gets played later at the end when E.T., you know, is is very close to death. So it's this sense of isolation and this sense of being overwhelmed. Yeah. All in just this musical cue. The camera angles, I think, have a lot to do with how well this comes over to a child's perspective. Because E.T. is small... And because the camera is focused on him more often than not, the camera angles are often very low, Mm. which is not common for a film which also contains adults. Um, You would normally have the cameras around the adults' head heights and the kids would be something that you look down on, but that's not the case in this. This is why you get uh, adults with their heads cut off like uh, Mm. in, in Peanuts. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, honestly, Gertie who also and- don't talk. Yeah. They don't converse. They're just, you know, move, moving around, thinking their infernal thoughts. Yeah, but Gertie and ET are about the same height, and quite often when you've got kind of a a POV shot or a not necessarily a POV shot, but a, a camera that's following one of the two of them, you all you see is legs. <laughs> Chris, we're talking so much. Uh, anything you want to jump in on this? No, no, I, I like what you're saying, so I'm just letting it go. You know, so, so about the music, because mm-hmm. that's where we got you from this. Yeah. Um, a thing that really struck me this time watching it for this show that I never really noticed is before there's even that, like, very opening bits of, like, the real... Before it, like, below. The E.T., when E.T. comes up, takes up the whole damn screen, there's this eerie, almost, like, low theremin, like, you should feel on edge right now thing going on that I love that they lead you into it, like, this could be unsafe, everybody. This might be a bad alien movie. Like, you don't really know. And I, I like that use of... um catching you off guard that they do that whole opening catches you off guard because every other time we've seen that scene with the people chasing the alien around in the woods it's because the alien is going to do something bad you know and and we see these aliens what are they doing they're just foraging they're just looking at stuff they're not even hurting anything it's it's a very immediately um different and subverted alien movie than you're used to seeing and and i love that about it 
Uh, it almost worked a bit too well on Lyra because she did not love this film when we first saw it. I expected her to be in floods of tears, but it, it almost felt like she went into emotional overload and shut herself down. Like the what, like what was happening on screen was so painful that she couldn't engage. Kind of the way that I've been. I saw uh, Jojo Rabbit in 1917 in quick succession, and that's a oh lot. Boy. That's a lot of war. Even if one of them's supposed to be a, uh, a comedy and the other one's supposed to be an action film, that's that's a lot of feeling. So I kind of had to shut myself off. Mm. And I asked Lyra, you, you know, did you like ET when you were a kid? She said it scared me, mm. and that. Makes sense that you know they they put they put children and E.T. himself in peril. Mm. Even today, she had to turn away when the ship leaves without him. Mm. Oh, it's too much for for a very it's hard, dude. child. Yeah, I mentioned before uh, John Williams' use of the harp, and when they're in Elliot's bedroom and they're, they're first connecting for the first time, there's that. Dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. And again, it's only ever employed by Williams when he wants to just make it feel gentle and sensitive and and, and very light and emotion because the um, you know just soft emotion because the harp feels like water, which is very much queued up with emotion. Um, and then there's. When the bad guys turn up, the government, there's this theme which honestly wouldn't be out of place in Return of the Jedi. This. Like, if that turned out to be Darth Vader's theme, I'd be like, figures. And it's almost disapproving. Like, it's not really ominous. It's, uh, you know, honestly, just like that is more ominous. And that's actually queued up with forces beyond control. What were you saying? Um, Okay, earlier today, I was writing down notes and I was desperately trying to think of a specific word that means threatening, but when it's applied to music. And ominous is the word I was desperately trying to think of, and it's only just hit me. So thank you for that. What a concept. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, it almost makes you think that maybe George Lucas and Steven Spielberg had a little bit of an issue with authority at this point in their history. A little bit, but Steven Spielberg met Ronald Reagan and was filled with praise for the guy. And as I said, Spielberg rose to uh, his... Peak of prominence, and you know, made massive technological advancements during the 80s when uh, Reagan was ruling the roost. So, if anything, he would have definitely profited from this particular figurehead of authority. Mm. Yeah. I, I I love the idea of because um, you said that this is in a lot of John Williams scores is something similar to this, but here I like that it's it's playful and ominous. Is, is a weird way to say it, but it's like mm-hmm. it's almost like the look at these bumbling idiots doing their bumbling idiot things, yeah. you know, because because it comes off almost like that if this was the good characters rummaging through someone's house, mm. you know, or, or rummaging through an area, you'd have a similar score. It would just be the the down notes wouldn't be as prominent, you know. It's yeah. like a this is like the the Goonies going through that you know um, restaurant for the first time, you know, type of score. But it just happens to go to the uh, as at this point faceless men in black guys that are walking around chasing ET around. Another thing I've always noticed with them is the film likes to play with <clears throat> ideas of whether or not they are fully lawful 
because there's scenes where they're around where you hear like the police showing up in the background where it's like, are they showing up because these guys are where they shouldn't be or because there was just an alien ship? <laughs> you know, I, I always find that interesting. Mm. We don't know who they are, do we? No, it never it's gets never said. It's not even all that important. Whether they're CIA or... Because this is from a kid's point of view. If you told <laughs> yeah. the kids who they were, they'd be like, I don't care, E.T. doesn't matter, men in suits. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it sets in our heads from a very early age. Watch out for government pe- uh, types. They will be very interested in our aliens. Uh, and... Then, like, I could be wrong on this, and Musos will be able to correct me if I am. There's a muted trumpets version of that, which is impossible to sound menacing when you're going, wah, 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 like that. Just to illustrate that they are kind of feeling around in the dark themselves. Uh, that's that's neat on uh, uh, Williams' part. If uh, it, that's what that sound evokes for me, it's mm. it's it's not brass that's slightly off sounds klutzy. Yeah, um, and then when they do the exciting uh, bike riding, that's the it's the it's the every fanfare? time that yeah it's the fanfare of he noodles around with that theme until they get to take off the second time and then it reprises uh, even more of that kind of from when Elliot does his you know bike over the moon which is such an iconic piece of cinema it's the Amblin logo mm-hmm. uh, and um, then you, the goodbye is mostly very soft. He just brings it back down, makes it just just doesn't let the score get in the way. It just underpins it, but it's very soft and sweet and 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 sad. But it doesn't pummel you. It doesn't say "cry, you bastards." And then, though that is the general effect. And then when <laughs> ET goes, rather than amping up the sadness, it's triumphant. It's the da 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 da. And then it's playing all 2001. Boom, 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 boom. This was a good thing. And it's right that E.T. goes home to communicate to the kids that even though it's sad, it's good. So uh, uh, Stephen uh, himself was trying to communicate with um, uh, young Drew Barrymore and um, uh, Henry Thomas. And he said, you know, make you feel kind of happy, sad. And I had never seen that before. Uh, I'd never seen these extras. Happy sad was a term Lyra came up with when she was about three to describe melancholy. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. So she owes Steven Spielberg some bucks. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You you, you hit on all these things. It, it's such a ballsy move for a movie, particularly geared towards children, to to hit these themes, right? Things are usually very black and white kids' movies. Yeah. You know, it's usually very, this is happy thing, this is sad thing, bad thing go away, happy thing good. <laughs> and, and this movie, you know, already in a broken family, yeah. you know, where it's a broken family, but the mum is sad about it, but the kids still seem to have good contact with their father. So something bad happened. Something split them up, you know what I mean? Obviously, but they're going on with their lives. They're they're finding a new normal, even though the mother is obviously very broken. But 
that evokes the thing with E.T. This good thing comes into your life. You share this emotional connection. It's allowing the son to learn how to be to emote and be more in touch with his feelings. And it helps the whole family. But it's telling you that there's things that can come into your life that can be good but can't always be there. And you have to accept that just because they're gone, it's not bad that they're gone. Yeah. Because they did what they needed to do for you. And that is a lot of shit for a kid to deal with. <laughs> like yeah. a lot of emotion. It really is. And there's some subtle hints there at uh, emotions and reactions that are going to be a little bit too big for the target audience as well. Because particularly in Mike's interactions with everybody, he's kind of on the cusp. And you can see there's one or two moments where he's not quite sure which side of the parent-kid dividing line he's supposed to fall now that his dad's gone. Mm. He will muck in with Elliot and Gertie and do something kid-like, like squabbling over whose turn it is to do the dishes. But then as soon as he realises that that is upsetting to his mother, he tries to side with her. He tries to make himself more grown up. In, and it almost feels like he's only doing it to make her feel like she's not completely on her own. I've got a note here, caught between childhood and maturity. Mm. He's uh, having to be the man of the house too soon. There's a telling moment when they go out into the yard to uh, look for this. Just after they've done it, we'll save it, Mom, da, 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 and he's acting like this little, like, he's being very immature, but at the same time he's been hanging around with his friends and they're all trying to be a kid's version of mature, which means grabbing kitchen knives and rushing out into the yard against the advice of the adult in the room. When he sees the footprints, he says, I think the coyote came back, Mom, but his voice is, like, dead serious. I'm like, Christ. And then he says it again later, you know, uh, when, when Elliot says, you know, I've got something to show you, and he goes, did the coyote come back? And again, it's like, what the fuck did this coyote do? <laughs> like, they right? used to have did, did, two dogs, and now they've only got one. <laughs> Jesus. I, I felt the same way. And, you know, it, it's funny that you talk about, like, the immature version of trying to act like an adult, because it reminded me of the way Hooper mocked Quint on the boat in Jaws. Yeah. I can't hold out much longer. You know, like that. Like, like just... <laughs> Also, yeah, and like uh, Hooper, I don't think we actually mentioned that when behind Quint's back, Hooper like does that sort of arm pump and then sticks his disgusting bait-covered gloved little fingers into his mouth and, and goes, like a kid would do <laughs> to illustrate that he's a kid angry at a parent. That's how great Jaws is. And we're still talking about it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't help him bring it up no 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 that is yeah no i'm glad i got we got to mention that bit another michael moment um exactly what you were just saying regarding the whole washing up thing uh when the mum wanders off sad uh, after the dispute over doing the dishes because she's like oh bloody hell um is it like that's is that the dad's in mexico thing yeah uh yeah something about talk to your father yeah i can't he's in mexico with sally sally by the way is the reason why this family is broken Mm. that would be my guess i'd say she was more symptom but uh yeah let's not blame too much on sally dad has gone off with sally yes sally relatively recently mexico yeah uh, Mexico is space. Sally is the aliens from Close Encounters of a Third Kind. Uh, but yeah, Michael says to Elliot, why don't you grow up and think about how other people feel for a change? Illustrating that Mike is, like, again, caught between like uh, you know, the, the antics in the bedroom of, he came back, he came back! 
and like strangling himself with it, this you know, pretend hand. And then even afterwards, when Elliot's behind him saying, you know, you have absolute power, and he's like, mom's going to get so, going to kill you. And he just does this like little child. There's these little bursts of childhood still waiting to get and out of Mike. He does the Yoda voice. As well. Absolute power, yes. And <laughs> <laughs> but why don't you grow up and think how other people feel for a change? Elliot does. By the end of the movie, that's the theme of the movie. Elliot is all suddenly about empathy. Mm, yeah. Also, just following on from Mike's reactions and the way he responds to things, he is, again, trying to be a grown-up but doesn't know how. When their mum comes back and he's obviously incredibly afraid for Elliot and E.T. And he's bringing his mum into the room and he tries to pull the same shit with her that Elliot pulled with him. I'm not bringing you in here unless you make a super, super promise. You can't say that to your (laughs) mum. It's not going (laughs) to (laughs) work. Mike, Mike, come in. How you feeling, Faker? I'm feeling fine. Look, I've got something really you know, important to tell you. You said he got 69,000 on asteroids yesterday, but he pulled the plug. Look, remember the goblin? You're so lame, Elliot. On Michael, he came back. He came back? He came back? Oh, my God! One thing. I have absolute power. Say it. Say it! What have you got? Is it the coyote? No. Look. Okay. Now, swear it. The most excellent promise you can make. Swear as my only brother on our lives. Don't get so heavy, I swear. Okay, um, stand over there. And, um, you'd better take off your shoulder. What? You might scare him. And, um, close your eyes. Don't push it, Elliot. I'm not coming out there until your eyes are closed. Okay, they're closed. I'm just gonna kill you. Okay, uh, swear it one more time. I have absolute absolute power. Yes. Um, We could talk about the actual creation of E.T. himself uh, because this was something that that took a lot of different people, a lot of different actors performing different physical aspects of E.T., a lot of different model makers and voices. And E.T. is that that whole it takes a village thing. It takes a village to make an Mm -hmm. E.T. I think one of the absolute masterstrokes was the hands, because uh, the, um, Yoda is obviously is is uh, is a puppet controlled by maybe the greatest puppeteer who ever lived, Frank Oz, and you know he he's got this expressiveness and he can actually sort of work the fingers and things like that. But E. T. wasn't going to be the same kind of Muppet, but because of the like long arms and the spindly fingers and the way that Spielberg shot E. T., we got um, an actual. Uh, an act, uh, a hand actress, basically. Uh, what's uh, what was her name? Caprice Roth. Caprice Roth 
Yeah, who was you know had particularly long, spindly fingers, and every little delicate hand movement that ET does, all of those little like careful moving things around, and just and folding his fingers over Elliot's shoulder. Yeah, it's it, there's a such so much personality just in the hands. So much like you can't look at the hands and you know the way they're moving and not think ET is alive. Mm. Yeah. Drew Barrymore was convinced E.T. was real and that he just went to sleep between takes. Kind of. No, no, no. She, she said wow. intellectually she knew he wasn't real, but he felt really real when she was in the moment, when yeah. she was acting. Um, but I tell you what the hands really remind me of, actually. Doug Jones. Yeah. Yep. And that putting a character through in the fingers, the way he does that. Honestly, you can't go far wrong, actually, than getting someone who's really gifted with their hands and putting prosthetics on their face and just going... What you effectively then end up with is a dance. A a dance of hands, which is communicative in its own right. Yeah. Almost every interaction... Um, early in the film that Elliot has with E.T. is all through the hands. Um, the the um, luring into the house with the Reese's Pieces, all you ever see is the hands reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of E.T. first entering his room and seeing E.T. like from his perspective looking around at all the cool human stuff and pictures and toys, you just see the hands rummaging around on the table like, ooh, look at this stuff. And and I, I love the way that they did that. And knowing that it was a hand model doing it, and that being the reason why that's so prominent and pronounced, is it's it's like the barrel thing in Jaws. And it, there's just things in these Spielberg movies that it I'll call you know having a hand actor do a do do the hands. You know, it, it is a less is more thing, but it really gives the character character in a part of the body that a puppeteer wouldn't normally be as concerned with. They'd be so concerned with the face. They'd want you to see that all the time, and that's how it's going to emote, and that's how it's going to talk. And instead, E.T., for the majority of the first half of the movie, emotes through his through his hands and what he interacts with, complete with having a glowing finger, yeah. you know, that he uses to fix Elliot, you know, and all. It's amazing. There's one moment where the eyes are incredibly important, and it's that finger moment, and I'd never seen it until today. I wasn't looking for it. Doing these shows sometimes is amazing for just unlocking all the little details of a film. Because if you're watching it with absolute rapt attention, like we do, it's like, wow, I'd never... Like, just you find new things. When E.T. holds up his glowing finger, his pupils dilate. They go from being big to being small. And then when he lowers it, they go from small to being big illustrating obviously that light being in front of his eyes is making his pupils contract it makes you feel like et's alive and it's just a tiny little detail most people wouldn't notice and you wouldn't get with like say creepy ewok glass eyes i was gonna say it's, it's part of what makes um some eye models on live action puppets as well as on cg models mm. look glassy and not alive because the pupils, the pupils don't, don't move yeah and yeah also that one of the reasons why some really great uh, 3d animated films first started to endear themselves to people and people didn't really know why 
But it's because, and we mentioned this for Tangled, and I think we've probably mentioned it for Shrek, um, just the eyes scan left and right just a little bit. They, they're busy. They just sit in their heads. And they also don't do that very um, Disney 2D version, which is that they sort of like look to the left and then look to the right and then just exaggerate everything. They don't have to exaggerate things in 3D. In fact, it's, it's sometimes better to just do very little, tiny, tiny movements because... If you exaggerate that too much, suddenly it kind of kicks you out of it, which I think brings us to the 2002 20th anniversary re-release of E.T., which we watched most of again today when we were sort of re, re we did a rewatch and then we continued it. We, we watched it in 4K and my God, if you haven't got a 4K TV set, they're coming down to just a few hundred bucks. So if you, you, your next TV upgrade, just 4K compatible. And the Xbox One is a fine... Sorry, Xbox One S is a fine 4K player. This ET disc is amazing. It's... Like, not so much in, in terms of, of, of just, you know, things popping off the screen. But just clothing detail the cross hatching on Elliot's long winter underwear just the the, the ripples on ET's skin that this beautiful model that and uh, that they put together that because of the movement you don't think of as a model you just think that's ET and the 4K disc it's it's five stars for visuals on blu-ray.com and for a very good reason the blu-ray is also fantastic yeah, that's what that's what I have. Yeah. Holy moly! But then we went all the way back to the 2002 DVD, uh, which has never like this version of it has never made it into HD, and good because it is not one that people need to see, and except for for reference purposes, uh, it is it's one to be included in box sets just so that we've got every cut of it. But um, and it's actually lighter than I thought it would be in terms of like not every shot of ET is uh, added to, or, but what they've done is. They've pasted over E.T. for various sections when he's fully in frame and if he's moving and especially if he's emoting and they've gone right. In the original puppet, he sort of opened his mouth and his eyebrows went up a little bit. But now we've given him loads of facial expression and it's too hard. It's too much and it reminds everyone who sees it of the 1997 Star Wars Special Editions. It is a direct result of the Star Wars Special yep. Editions, and it makes me angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shouldn't make you too angry, because when it, for the 2011 Blu-ray release, Spielberg went, yeah, let's just, let's just give him the original, because that looks really good these days. And I think he just sort of went back and watched the, uh, um, the, uh, the 2002 version, and just stuff must have bothered him. He must have just thought, you know, you're watching this film, and your mind is going back to 1982, but these effects are clearly not from 1982. It's just a little too exaggerated, a little too much. When he, he runs, they actually thought hard about uh, the run cycle of, of, of uh, someone who actually had the skeleton of E.T. And they worked out that he would run like a gorilla. So he kind of bounces up and down like a friggin' kangaroo instead of just that weirdly smooth like shopping cart run <laughs> at the beginning where it's just this <laughs> orange orb flying along. I, we accept E.T., flaws and all, because that combination of different models and puppeteers and voices and all of these things and Ben Burt's amazing sound, 
and Deborah Winger's breathing, and then this um, pharmacist who had this, like, two cigarette packs a day, sort of raspy voice, who was paid, like, $380 to do all of E.T.'s lines, and bought a vanity plate that said, I love E.T. <laughs> so as Sharon said, she pumped that meager amount of money into promoting E.T., wonderful but the studio should have also then sent her ten thousand dollars so all of these things combined together and then in 2002 they just kind of pasted over many of the shots and went yeah what what about if we do it digitally and it's it's just a, a shade too much just a it pops every time and some some of the earlier shots aren't so bad because it's in almost total darkness but the later ones when he's just wandering around the house it's distracting as hell and it reminds me that, to date, the only versions of Star Wars you can get on Blu-ray, and soon in 4K, will have all these gleep clops added to it. And I know I mention it all the time, but uh, it would be really nice for just regular people, not just the super fans who, who track down the uh, um, despecialized editions, to be able to get to the original Star Warses. Yeah. <laughs> and, and And then you get into the... Oh, not just because I can I can give a director with with a, you know, spite how I feel about death of the author and everything else being given a technology and going, OK, I made a movie and, and I this is a topic for another podcast that, that I want to do with some friends of mine. But, you know, the thought of as long as you call it a different edition, I don't have a problem with you doing it. Hmm. It's when you do it. And then pretend it's the original movie you made. You don't tell me it's a different revision. You don't tell me it's a special edition. And that's the problem, right? When Star Wars, the special edition came out, you could still, for a time, get Star Wars. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, the special editions just became Star Wars. And this regular ones went away. But with E.T., it's like, okay, I can give them wanting to go in and meddle a little bit. But it's the changing of dialogue. Hmm and changing of actual other stuff in the shots that gets me more. And I don't know if that struck you guys as much, but I, I believe what's it, the penis breath line is removed. Oh, really? Which, which is, yes, which is childish and silly. And of course, in the crazy homophobic society we've ended up in, it gets people you know angry to hear a little child say that, even if it's meant as a dig to their brother. And I, I get it, but that scene is perfect because he says it in the way the mum reacts and that I'm angry but I'm laughing at you because that was kind of childishly funny is just missing. What are you going as for Halloween? I'm not going to stupid Halloween. Why don't you go as a goblin? Shut up. It's not that we don't believe you, honey. Well, it was real, I swear. What are you going as, Gerd? I'm going as a cowgirl. So what else is here? Maybe it was an iguana. It was no iguana. Maybe a, uh, you know how they say there are uh, alligators in the sewers? Alligators in the sewers. All we're trying to say is maybe you just probably imagined it. I couldn't have imagined it. Maybe it was a pervert or deformed kid or something. A deformed kid. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. It was nothing like that, penis breath. Elliot, (laughs) sit down. <clears throat> Dad would believe me. Maybe you ought to call your father and tell him about it. I can't. He's in Mexico with Sally. Where's 
Where's Mexico? I'm gonna kill you. If you ever see it again, whatever it is, don't touch it. Just call me and we'll have somebody come and take it away. Like the dog catcher? But they'll give it a lobotomy or do experiments on it or something. It's your turn to do the dishes, fellas. I set and cleared. I set and cleared. I did breakfast. I did breakfast. What's the matter, Mom? It's Mexico. Damn it, why don't you grow up? Think how other people feel for a change. I actually think the version we saw today on DVD had penis breath in there. Oh, okay. But then maybe, they maybe might they have, had you might have seen thoughts. a TV version where they did cut it. Mm. One thing I could have they... sworn my friend said in the theatrical release of it that that was gone. Same with the uh, shotguns and radio thing. Mm. Yeah. They... One thing they definitely change is uh, when the mother is telling Mike not to go out for Halloween dressed as a terrorist and yes in the, uh, in the 2002 edition she tells him not to go out dressed as a hippie yeah all the other kids are doing it i think they got d wallace back for that because it mm. definitely it, sounds, it sounds like, her, like for the, her yeah but here's the thing he's not by any shade of the imagination dressed as a hippie yeah no. uh, and, and also, I can see that edit in 2002. Yeah, two, I was going to say, 2002 is mere oh. months afterwards. It would have been in, like, post-production for the uh, effects I being added totally in late 2001. Why. And it's just, totally they, they would have kept getting to that terrorist line and going, it's just not feeling right. How do we, how do, we do this? Uh, and they could just have removed that bit, just trimmed that altogether. They, they put a replacement in. The uh, Steve says he never really felt comfortable about the fact that the government agents seem to be packing heat. They've got guns, and the guns are near the kids, and it feels uncomfortable. And I think he's right. It's supposed to feel uncomfortable. It's ridiculously yes. heavy-handed that these guys have got shotguns. And like the, the, the shot immediately after the guy's like pulling out a shotgun, and you only see his midriff, you never see his face again, just making sure that these are adults, scary adults from a kid's eye view, is E.T.'s face going, ah, oh, no, we're going to fly. And then they fly up and over these guys, clutching at their walkie-talkies. <laughs> it's, it's quite ingenious how they managed to remove the, the, uh, the shotguns and actually insert walkie-talkies. And I noticed that that dropped the certificate in the UK from a PG to a U, meaning you could just let any kid watch this. But that suggests that the presence of those guns... It was the thing that bumped it up to a PG in the first place. Oh, because it's not in the United States. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Again, the, the the version that came out on um, Blu-ray in 2011, and then the 4K version recently has you know they they, they simply gave us from the original reels the the the, uh, the first version of the film, and all of these revisions were just done away with. It was always baffling to me that after the brouhaha regarding Han shot first in 1997, and everyone was like, oh, God, blah, 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 blah. For the 2004 uh, DVD, he meddled with it again. And, like, 
ever so slightly tweaked the timing, but it was still basically the same. For the 2011 Blu-ray, again, it was slightly different. And then for 2012, he added the McClunky line, which we haven't seen till recently. McClunky. As opposed to just, well, people hated it. Maybe I could just restore that version? <laughs> just... It, it's... Um, the, the fact that Spielberg went, it's all going. All of these revisions we made, including the uh, deleted scenes which are reinstated wherein E.T. takes a bath and um, there's a little bit of teenage Halloween, which is quite different from kids' Halloween with a bunch of uh, teenagers causing uh, chaos. But it's it's neat to see Spielberg going, yep, these were all mistakes and if we're going to do away with it, we do away with all of it. And I also gave him credit for when that DVD came out, the the 20th anniversary edition, mm-hmm. I believe it was. They had both versions of the movie on it. Bingo! Like yeah. they were just like, "Here, you can have both." <laughs> like, and that was that was good because some of the some of the extra features that came along with it were really cool. Yeah. So really, there was lovely in depth um, stuff about the uh, you know to set at the time and making it, and there was a lot of a lot of footage of him just hanging out with the kids, chatting with them, never being patronizing, getting them really talking, getting them excited, and 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 ch- like there's a bit where he's just sort of talking to all the teenagers about space invaders versus asteroids versus defender, and Henry Thomas is getting really like I'm holding court here. Defender's the best one, but he's just like asking about it on on their level and. It's a personal film for him, obviously, and interestingly, hanging around with these kids for this much time encouraged him to actually cultivate a broader family of his own uh, because he just enjoyed the experience so much, which um, probably led to uh, some some more uh, kiddie films like Hook being made. A.T. was a gift that came from the heavens for me. I was in Tunisia making Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we were setting up a, a shot, and I was picking up fossils in the desert, which used to be the bottom of the ocean millions of years ago. We were out there in the Nefta Desert. I was picking up, uh, and I was remembering the end of Close Encounters, when Richard Dreyfuss goes up into the mothership, and just before that, the little alien comes down and does the hand signs to Francois Truffaut. And it just hit me out of the sky. I thought, what if the alien had stayed behind on Earth? What if he didn't, what if it was a kind of foreign exchange? Dreyfus goes away and the alien stays. And it's suddenly this whole story hit me like a ton of bricks. And, which was really a story about my mom and dad when they got divorced and how I felt as a kid, wanting a, a friend like that to fill the void in my life. And, and, and all these things came pouring in and I actually put the story together in a couple of, I think a couple of days. And then it happened to be that Harrison Ford's wife, Melissa Matheson, who had written the Black Code, written the Black Stallion, was on the set with Harrison. And I just want to get this thing written, and I love Black Stallion. I said, hey, hey, Melissa, you want to write this? She said, no. <laughs> and then Harrison talked her into it, and then she said yes eventually, and, and she did a tr- tremendously wonderful screenplay for me. Whenever they show these government officials or alien chasers or area 51 guys or whatever they are that um are obviously you know they're not using like some like really futuristic gadgets they always show them with like you know things you've seen you know that existed in that time they don't like pull out even when they're like looking at et when they have him and elliot in the house it's like a regular like lab setup it's not anything super futuristic you know increase the science noise and put out more stuff and i always found it cool when they were in the house 
doing whatever they're doing in Elliot's room that they just have something plugged into a regular wall outlet and they don't even have a long enough extension cord for it. Like you see the guy like it's about to pull out. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that- I'm like, this is it's a fun little just addition of ineptitude or like that they're out of their element that I loved. That's actually shot in a really scary way. It's um, like it's plugged into the wall, and then the pulling of the cable like jams a chair backwards against the wall, kind of yeah. controlling and restricting it. So it's 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 funny that they're they're kind of um, they haven't anticipated the shape of the house and the distances they're going to need. Mm-hmm. But it also suggests that they might. You know, squeeze too hard in their attempts to control yeah. this well, situation. There's, there's so many little bits and pieces throughout this section that really make you feel the sense of intrusion, the idea that your space and your safety has been pushed aside to accommodate these people who are acting without care and attention to what you feel and what you need. And again, I keep coming back to Mike. I'm not entirely sure why... His his actions are the ones that really stood out for me this time. But um, when Elliot is being seen to and E.T. is going rapidly downhill, Mike retreats to the bedroom and curls up in a little space in the closet that Elliot set up like cushions and a lamp and a, and a, a bedspread. And that's obviously where he goes to feel safe. And Mike, who again is desperately trying to be... the a grown-up in this situation, if not the grown-up, retreats to this space of childhood safety because it's the only place that's not being intruded on by these agents. When you're a kid, you don't pay too much attention to Mary, the mum. Like, she's uh, she's the person that the kids that you're identifying with are keeping the secret from. She's the person who is oblivious to E.T. being in uh, her midst. When you're an adult, you pay closer attention, I would imagine, I certainly did, to just little details that uh, Dee Wallace is kind of party to. The, um, the, the Mexico hitting her hard started making me think about the time frame of you know how recently the dad has left and her feeling guilty about not being able to hold it together in front of her kids um but the like when she brings her clothes back from the dry cleaners and she's like you know getting upset because the uh, ragu hasn't hasn't come out it's because she can't afford to buy new clothes she's experiencing money worries and by extrapolation when Elliot's talking with Mike in the garage uh, and they smell their dad's shirt that he left behind to to, you know, to identify his aftershave. Whilst, by the way, these this government guy Keys is listening in, and the music's really quite creepy. Rather than it being like this is a, them remembering their father, and the music's you know it's playing on the invasive aspects of what's going on here. But they say, you remember when we used to go to ball games or the movies, and we'd have popcorn fights, and it's just these little things that you do with your parents. And Mike says, we'll do that again, suggesting Mary hasn't been able to take them anywhere. They've been confined to the house. No wonder they're playing D&D. Who told you you could buy a pizza? Yeah. Thing always oh, yeah. Sticks. Yeah. The, uh, 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 it was the, the, the idea that when you, when you start getting strapped for cash, seeing people ordering pizza, you start going, oh, God, that's like 20 bucks. That's so expensive for just a pizza. Yeah, but they all threw in for it. Mm. We we know because we saw that, but she didn't see that happen. Yeah. She, like all she's thinking about at that stage is we've got food in the house. I'm mm. spending all that. She even says like this, these groceries get more and more just week to week. Yeah. So you've got this tension with Mary all the time. And 
the bit where she's dressed as a cat lady for Halloween and she's so happy at first and she's seeing her kids all sort of mucking in for Halloween going, they're still kids. They've still got some innocence. They can still have some fun. And she, you know, takes a photo of them and then sits alone in the house dressed as a cat waiting for them to come back so she can have a little bit of fun with them before they go to bed. And then she starts to sort of blow the candles out with this kind of resignation of, yep, that's not happening. And then, like, taps one candle with her cat wand, and it won't go out. She's like, tap, tap, tap! And it's just this little, like, burst of frustration. And it's the first Halloween she's been alone as an adult for a long time, clearly. And she's really feeling it there. And it's just... It's a... It's a relatively thankless task to be the mum in E.T., but she did amazingly well. Mm, Yeah. And uh, alongside the money worries of what she's having to spend, she's having to work uh, a a lot, it would appear, certainly in the sense that she's working full-time and is having to get the boys to watch Gertie because she can't do household chores and uh, showering and things like that without assistance and support, which she's having to get used to having to do it alone. The fact that she has to go to work and leave Elliot home alone poorly. Now, he's probably, like, on the cusp of that being okay. And obviously, every parent is the best gauge of, of how mature their child is and whether they can cope with that. But he's... I mean... Uh, he's still a little young, I would say, to be left on his own while she goes out to work mm. if he's sick in bed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, uh, apologies if I if I get oddly emotional here, but um, the this is really the first time hearing it come from that and watching it for this that I really recognized that the dad was gone. I think when I was a kid, it just registered to me that that was so much like my normal day to day at home, that my mom was running around doing everything and working multiple jobs. And me and my brother watched my sister because my my dad left for work at four in the morning and spent his night at bars. So we didn't see him. And um, he was there for like ball games, you know, all the important stuff. But during the week, it was just us and my mom. And, uh, you know, that for for a topic not on this podcast but just to know it, it's really kind of revelatory that a movie that's kind of showing hey this kind of childhood is becoming more common here and it's part of the reason why these kids can go on these adventures and stuff but also there's a lot going on with this mom now I'm just thinking of my mom you know alone on Halloween night and stuff like that and it's it, it's a it brings so much more to this performance mm. than I think I thought originally. So much more reality. Yeah. Like like a lot of the little bits we talked about when we were talking about Jaws. And it it made me think of one of those. And I don't know if you guys noticed it this time. But when Elliot and E.T. are first interacting and E.T.'s mimicking him, mm-hmm. it brought me right back to the Brody mm. and his son bit. And that they both got this sweet kind of harp music because John Williams recognises a, a, a commonality between those scenes. Nice. I love, by the way, the fact that we're saying mum and you're saying mum. It's like we're trading <laughs> off. <laughs> and that that mimicking as well is it's a really important element for seeing people communicating when they can't talk to each other very easily. Because 
mimicking is again it's one of the ways that we build communication skills when we're tiny are the adults around us will do things that we copy and if they are observing and reflecting us in a way that we will then feel connection with they mimic our actions too and that sort of there's there's a lot that goes on between the exchange between uh, et and elliot that in both directions often felt to me like somebody being compassionate and nurturing to a, a baby stay here stay and don't tell anybody no nobody be good be good the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Phone. Phone? He said phone? He said phone? Can't you understand English? He said phone. Home? You're right. That's E.T.'s home. Gertie, as the little sister, uh, this is one of uh, Drew Barrymore. Was it the first she'd ever been in anything? I believe this was her first, yes. And it was obviously the beginning of a, a lengthy um, career. And I noticed this time that she strikes a really fine balance between precocious and oblivious. Like she's young enough to not know too much about the world, but she's smart enough to know some stuff about the world and she's trying to keep up with her brothers um so which make like and the skills which drew barrymore exerts at this point like usually when you see a child actor like this it's way too much in the oblivious bracket if they're young they're just wandering around they don't know what's going on the 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 boy in the latest tim burton dumbo it's just nothing's happening there Mm -hmm. And then if you get a slightly older kid, um, I'm thinking like um, Summer in uh, School of uh, Rock, where they're really canny and they're just sort of acting like an adult. Mm. Uh, but, but Barrymore's, like, she's got actual straight-up straight man chops during the scene when E.T.'s wandering around the kitchen and uh, Mary is just caught, kind of not seeing him all the time. And Gertie is effectively us as the audience avatar going, he's right here! And then she, her delivery on that, uh, you know, 
when she opens the fridge, bashes E.T. in the face, and she's like, the man from the moon, but it's okay, I think you killed him already. It's, like, just totally deadpan, and she's fantastic at that. Her other point of very, very dry delivery, and she does it in a way that makes me think it feels real, because it feels like she's heard Mary saying this and Mm -hmm. is mimicking her, is the... Is he a pig? He sure sure eats eats like one. (laughs) (laughs) So good. I, I love I love how she can deliver these lines, but she never feels like you know how in the in the Charlie Brown movies the kids feel like they're being written as adults. Yeah. Like it's like kids speaking like adults. She never feels that way. There's always things peppered in there that remind you that she's the age that she is. I, I loved the when she's trying to tell the mom about E.T., her, her, she apologizes. I'm not supposed to say, and that's such a little kid thing, hmm. you know? And, and I love the way that she seemed so innocent yeah. throughout all of this, even though she's trying to, you know, catch up to growing up. I mean, all three of them have had to do some quick growing up, right? Like, they're, they're all a lot older. Elliot wants to, you know, be playing D&D and hanging out with the big kids. It, it, is it me? I, it didn't strike me this time, but I'm pretty sure all the boys playing D&D are smoking cigarettes. You know, is, is that yes. correct? Like, the first time you see him, it's, it's, it's blue. It's like a John Cassavetes film. But one of them yeah. definitely has an ashtray with a burning butt sat in it. Yeah. And I was like, I'm sure that I- the mom comes in and goes, no smoking in my house. But uh, that she line never occurred. That, I had no. dreamed that up. She said, uh, no douchebag talk in my house. That's it. She smacks yep. him on the back of the head because yeah. she's like, honestly, uh, Mike. Smoking is fine, but don't you dare use any naughty words. Mike, I love <laughs> you, but your friends are unbearable. <laughs> it's good to remind me, too, that people said douchebag in the early 80s because mm. that was one of the things that when I watched Stranger Things, I was like, this is pulling me out of that show because no one said that till I was like 12. Apparently and then I went did. back, like, oh, E.T., okay, good. Mm-hmm. Of, like, right you just mentioned the elephant in the room. Stranger Things owes a considerable debt to the at least the aesthetic and tensions of E.T. Will's family is very much um, in this position. And uh, just the whole, like, wandering around the woods with those wonderful torches in the darkness... And uh, too many points to mention, but we've already covered Stranger Things, both, in fact, all three seasons. So, yeah, you can check those out, folks. Five. Oh, great. <laughs> so you got an arrow right in your chest, and you're out ten million. Oh, no. Don't worry about it, Mike. I got resurrection. I'll bring you back. I'm already one of the undead, Greg. I can still throw death spells, huh, Steve? I'm just trying to help yeah. you out, man. Don't be so cranky. How about throwing a spell over the pizza, man? Where did I pizza, man? Get it, huh? Well, I'm ready to play. You're a thief. I'm ready to play now, you guys. We're in the middle, Elliot. Can't you join any universe in the middle? I got him. I got him. Mm. Yeah, what am I supposed to do? Pop in my mouth. Pop in my mouth. Okay, tell me. Pop in my mouth. Yeah. Mike? I know it's not for us. It's for his mother. Mike? Papa, you have to ask Steve. He's game master. He has absolute power. Steve? Steve, can I play now? Go away for the pizza first. Then I'm in. Yeah, you're in. Figure out your strategy because you're playing after Greg. There's plenty of sausage and pepperonis. Everything but the little fishies. As you can hear, they're requesting songs from their local radio station. And uh, what was that song again? Papa Ooh Mau Mau? I went everybody's head about the bird. The bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. The bird is a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. Well, the bird is a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. 
Um, just one other small thing about Drew Barrymore as well. We've talked before about that tipping point that you described between kids being oblivious and actually knowing what's going on and being mm-hmm. able to perform is usually around about the age of eight. Now, Drew Barrymore was six going on seven when she filmed this. Yeah. So it's possible that she has come by that awareness a little bit on the early side Mm. but that that was already starting to develop for her Um, but one of the things that I absolutely love about Drew Barrymore is I watch Donnie Darko and I can see Gertie in there Hmm. it's like she hasn't changed an inch she has just got taller even when she goes out into the uh, playground frustrated because she's just been fired and goes (gasps) fuck especially when she does that that's Gertie's scream yeah True. I've I've always said that and you you hit the nail on the head up about Drew Barrymore is that you can tell how good of acting chops someone has mm. when you see their first performance in all of their performances moving forward. The exact same thing I was feeling about Henry Thomas. I've been mm. watching a ton of Mike Flanagan films. Mm-hmm. We did too. Henry Thomas is in damn near all of them, mm-hmm. and um, his performance as Jack Nicholson in Dr. Sleep, which I know you guys did as well, so I won't go too in-depth. I just see Elliot all over the face in that movie, and I can't... And it's a good thing. It's not like it takes me out of it. It's like, this kid had acting chops beyond his years Hmm. way back then. And he's he's still just that good. It's just wonderful. I think Spielberg is good at spotting those. Yeah. Another little Gertie moment that I love is uh, when uh, Elliot comes home and she's dressed him up like a, a little old lady. <laughs> and just the way she delivers, uh, I taught him to talk. He can talk now. And she's scratching her nose when she does it in a kind of an offhand, yeah, it wasn't no big deal. Mm. Kind of way. Yeah, that whole, because it makes, by scratching her nose, she's averting her eyes. She is proud of herself, but she is also a little bit shy about yeah. it. Which again defies that whole precociousness of, of of like sort of announcing it to the camera. Aren't you proud of me? But uh, the 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 point is, you don't want Gertie to ever be upset, and you start to feel really protective of her, no matter what your age is. So when E.T. was dying, and Drew Barrymore actually was kind of buying into it, she had never <clears throat> she had never seen those um, heart. Defibrillators. Defibrillators. And didn't even know that that machine existed. But she knew about E.T.'s glowing orange heart. So seeing that applied to his chest and the jolts. So when she's crying and she jerks her entire body because she's just completely feeling that moment. That is acting. Eating a bison liver is nothing in comparison to Drew Barrymore's (laughs) acting when E.T. is dying. But that, again, that's a manifestation of a a kind of empathy that I think people forget kids can have sometimes. There is a tendency to think that kids don't know what's going on, that they don't connect with other people, that they don't understand how other people feel. And they might not be able to necessarily put it in those words. They haven't got the the comprehension of how you can slightly separate empathy out into, yes, I hurt for you, but this is you and this is me, and I'm I know I'm really okay. The empathy there seems to be so uh, the the connection between them seems so wide and so uninterrupted that she's feeling his pain, which is a, a again a an echo of exactly what Elliot's been doing throughout the whole film 
Mike seems to be the only one who doesn't have in on this, and that's possibly because he is drifting towards adulthood. Mm. When E.T. gets drunk, uh, that's particularly delightful if you're a kid because it's breaking a taboo. We all knew we were not supposed to drink beer. And then when we did sneak a drink of beer, it was like, I'd like to purchase some of your finest beer, please. Hey, it's a fighting bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is an actual vomit. The actual scene. That sounds very specific, and it makes me think that happened to you. No, that was in Shazam. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it was. Which, by the way, has a feel of these kind of Amblin movies. Um, But uh, the... Just the delight of seeing E.T. sort of, like, bomb... You know... First off, the whole, let's go see what's in the fridge with that incredibly expressive dog. That's some great dog acting, by the way. Um, and, and then just sort of like, it just starts to affect Elliot. And because you've had everything about their links sort of set up, you're like, I wonder if... Oh, yep, Elliot is getting completely sloshed. And I also like the fact that the little girl, played by Erica Eleniak from um, Baywatch, uh, starts off, the, like her appearance in the film says, hey, Elliot, like, greets him at the bus stop and then looks at him several times to illustrate she kind of has a thing for him so that when he then kisses her, it doesn't feel creepy. Right. It feels... It, I, I was saying that this time. How is it that this feels, like, adorable and childish and fun mm. and not, like, a creepy, like, um... Just just creepy. It, it, it worked. And, and I love the whole, like like over over his age flirty thing he does when he looks over like ain't I cool and you look and no shit house I'm drinking all (laughs) kinds of beer today (laughs) I drink the beers it's Uh, fine from the sounds of it though Henry Thomas was like I'm not especially happy about being made to kiss a girl here not not loving this and um, like Steve had to kind of talk him through it and when they like he sort of got up on top of this kid's back and slammed his face against her so that they kind of butted teeth and she was like, right, okay, I think we got it. Like, that, that, that'll do. Cheers, thanks for it. Don't need to do another take. Uh, we're going to need another take, kids. That looks terrible. Okay, I guess I'll kiss him again. And, and if you look during the behind-the-scenes stuff, Erica Eleniak is a little weirded out by Thomas's like, over-reaction uh, behavior because he's obviously nervous about the, the, the prospect. Mm. He's manifestly a very sensitive little kid. All of the other scary things that happened in the movie didn't intimidate him nearly as much as this. Which I think is absolutely fair enough because it's it's kind it's forced intimacy on camera with everyone watching, mm-hmm. also, which would be why I, Steven Spielberg dressed up as an old lady to to, to make everyone laugh that day. Indeed, but also, and I like how it. Oh, oh sorry, Sharon. Go no, ahead. no, no. You go, Chris. I say I like that it only happens too because ET is watching it on the TV. Yeah. Yeah. Rather That's, than just as a result drunk. of the drunkenness. This isn't just like Henry Thomas is drunk, so now he's like a creepy, rapey teenager. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, God! <laughs> no, that's what I mean. Like, it, it, it adds to yeah. it that E.T. is seeing something humble and pleasant, yeah. you know, and, and and so Elliot is doing, like, the motions of the guy on the TV instead mm-hmm. of it being something worse than that, something, mm-hmm. you know, more instinctual and gross. Yeah, well, it's underlined by the fact that he... Uh, he picks up on E.T.'s I have to save this guy when he's reading the comic mm. and Elliot happens to be standing in front of a jar with a frog in it at the time so he's like I have to save this little guy let him out 
Yeah. <laughs> and then they all run around letting all the frogs out. I pointed out that E.T. goes from uh, drinking beer to hungover in less than half an hour. And you pointed out fast healing metabolism. Yes, he is. He heals fast. And ultimately, when you have a hangover, that is your body healing from being drunk. Yeah, that makes sense. I love the phone call too. Intoxicated? What? I'll, I'll be right there. <laughs> Are you sure you have the right Elliot? <laughs> In uh, there was a deleted scene where Elliot was being berated by uh, one of the wah 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 um, uh, principals. I think it was actually Harrison Ford, who you never saw his face, and his chair started to levitate up to the ceiling. And it was like, you know what? This is a little bit too much. It was uh, it was ET kind of taking control. But um, yeah, I think that that frog scene hits <laughs> the pinnacle of if you go further than this this movie is just full fantasy and can't exist in the real world anymore and i like that it it it, the music kicks up and the kids are acting in such like a Mm. almost like they're all under a spell and not just elliot and you go one step further with that and you lose people yeah and and it's just very well done measured shaman you said you objected and did not do uh dissection when you were at school didn't you uh yes i we didn't it wasn't even suggested until I was in, like, year 10, so I would have been about 14, and um, I sat out of that class because yeah. I didn't want to... They were basically like... Things uh, that were alive. They were saying... In the, the professor said in the class, uh, chloroform your frogs, then cut them open, you'll notice the heart's still beating. And I said to Sharon... This was absolutely essential medical research for when it came to operating on people. We had to cut frogs open and look at their insides. We don't have to do it in class. We can learn all about it without actually ripping something open and making it die. So I love the fact yep. that the class ends with the frogs all being set free and all being cast out of the windows to go to freedom. And, you know, we, we, for all we know, there was a babbling brook just beside that classroom. There wasn't. But the, either way, they all got to freedom. There is a stream nearby. We know that because E.T. falls into it. It's a lovely balance. Mm-hmm. And I, I especially like the view of that uh, uh, little girl with the pigtails just kind of holding... A frog in each hand, her feet covered in frogs, going oh, like cross-eyed. It's like, is it possible this girl has a terrifying phobia of frogs, and you've just broken her? Well, she does now. <laughs> in a few years' time, she's going to be reenacting that with frogs. That's that's ET two when they make it. That, that's the nemesis right there. <laughs> She goes to his planet and just covers them in some animal. How do like. you like being covered in frogs? Um, I, okay, a, a little note about Halloween. The Yoda appearance was something that he hadn't, he hadn't told George about. And uh, like when they were watching it at the uh, main, screen, uh, main screening, uh, George elbowed him hard during that bit, in which he, uh, Steve interpreted as, I think that was George saying, that's fine, that's okay. And Sharon said, interpreted your best friends. <laughs> But uh, uh, John Williams specifically said, do you think anyone will notice that they uh, play the uh, Yoda theme and uh, that he plays the Yoda theme and weaves that into the Halloween uh, section? And uh, Steve said, yeah, I think about 20 million people will recognize that theme. It was uh, beautifully woven into The Empire Strikes Back just two years before. So it's, it's iconic and it's, it's lovely to see that um, sort of evoked here. And again, this comes from it being a world where Star Wars exists, and it's been kind of touched by Star Wars. And the moon in the forest 
is impossibly huge. They actually had to do an effect wherein they enlarged it and like did a rear projection for, for, for that scene. And it's, it just convinced me at a young age that the moon was so much bigger in America than it is in England. And then I finally sort of, you know, I, I remember standing on a beach in Miami in uh, uh, 1999. I'd been to America many times since, but to, just to really eyeball the moon. And the sky was completely black and the sea was completely black. And the moon was fucking huge. I was like, yeah, it is that big. There's certain angles, man, uh, where it just it takes up the whole sky. And you're yeah. like, what the hell is going on here? And in a moment's instance, right, like I, I, being a, a man of science and like knowing how this stuff works, it still amazes me that like, oh, I can just drive like a few minutes down the road and now the moon's going to be tiny. It's <laughs> like, how did that really work? Like, <laughs> It's uh, it's magical and like like I said, the uh, you know absolutely iconic moment in cinema, this particular one. But it's followed really quickly with sort of a sad scene where Elliot starts to realise because he's been feeling it because he's not particularly happy and as he's putting on his hunchback costume that this whole process is to let ET go, and then he's kind of like wheedling with ET, like maybe don't go, we could grow old together. And uh, you, you're with him there, but then there's something about the way E.T. acts that it's like, I do feel this, but I definitely need to go. Like, this is a strange, hostile planet, and I am not meant to be here. And I miss the people I'm supposed to be with. And another really cool thing that I didn't notice until this time is that everybody thinks Elliot is in danger yeah. when E.T. is dying. And as soon as E.T. dies, which he does, or close to it, um, no, he does die, Elliot immediately comes back. Mm. And yet the good people in the movie then still save E.T. This isn't like a, oh, we took care of our son and the people are the only thing that matters. It's like it almost was a risk they were willing to take to like, okay, Elliot's sick, E.T.'s sick, we need to save them both. But they get their son back, and then there's still this selfless attachment to E.T. that, no, we need to help him. He's not, you know, like a piece of meat or a, you know, a cat we hit with our car accidentally. You know what I mean? There's there's more to it than that. And it, it always amazes me um, the more you watch a movie like this. Because I, 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 I told you I did that that director smackdown um, uh, of Steven Spielberg with, with some guys in another par- podcast mm-hmm. and the guy who runs that podcast does not like this movie mm-hmm. love Steven Spielberg does not like this movie and it's it's because I guess he was just never able to connect with it and 
it amazes me how much I can connect with it. You, you guys said this a lot in your Willow show about how people can just have a completely different experience than the one you had, and it doesn't mean either of yours are wrong. And I, I think that's fascinating. We've uh, talked about minority experiences a, uh, a lot of the time in um, on, on our show. It, what it comes down to is if everyone loves something and you're just not connecting with it. As you say, it's not an invalid feeling. It's a minority experience. And I think it's quite healthy to be able to recognize it as such. So, for example, uh, if you don't like the Shawshank Redemption, you can just say... You know, if, if someone asks you, yeah, actually, I'm the one guy who doesn't like the uh, Shawshank Redemption, and the whole it being a minority experience, that is absolutely fine to embrace. Being the one critic who's like, I'm going to be the one person who doesn't like Lady Bird, thus destroying her 100% success rate. That's that's kind of a dick move. And, and, and I've seen that all over the place, where it's like, I didn't like this thing that everybody else likes, or... This thing that everybody else hates, I liked it. Being comfortable with not liking something that someone else likes and just going, well, that's just my minority experience, is a really good way of approaching films because it means you don't have to defend your point quite so vociferously. And specifically, you don't feel that you have to convince everybody else not to like it too and spend all your days and all your nights constantly tearing strips off it on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, like Star Wars fans. <laughs> Wasn't gonna say, but yeah. The effects of exposure. I, I noted when I was a, a, a little kid that the, the Elliot and Et spend all night in the forest, and then they are oh. really sick. And it's possible they were sort of heading that way anyway, but it clearly really didn't help E.T. lying face down in a freezing cold riverbed. And him just going from that sort of healthy, crinkly brown to this just disgusting, dusted, white, plastered, shriveled, decayed lump. It's such a shocking transformation. And again, it gave me, I would like to think, a healthy fear of being exposed to the elements, especially overnight. Yeah. I grew up, um, in, like I say, uh, in the middle of nowhere, and we backed out into the country, and I made absolutely sure that I didn't spend... I had thoughts of running away several times as a kid, and I think my rationality went, yeah, no, you're just going to end up like E.T., face down, in a ditch, freezing cold, probably dead. Covered in white dust. Yeah. Um... I think I, I even tied this in with uh, when I talked about what I thought The Lost Boys was about in, uh, in when I sort of first saw the poster. The idea that outside is dangerous and inside is safe and warm. And I've really kind of... Like, my hermit-like existence of never wanting to leave the house unless it's the cinema may be predicated upon that. <laughs> well, you're scared that if you go out for too long, you might die. Yeah, it's very possible. Mm. Stranger things have happened. Uh, okay. So this is immediately followed by the heavy-handed government types. And the way that they actually make their presence known, like they've already gone into the house and done some um, uh, like uh, testing and, and in- installed some equipment. But the whole all getting spacesuits on 
And it's like, right, Steve, you come in the back door. I'll come in the front door. Mike, you come in through the window and just, like, waggle your hands at them in this terrifying way. That will definitely shit him up. What a preposterous way to make contact with this family. And I've always felt like, like, what are you even doing? (laughs) I mean, visually, I love what it parallels. It parallels that because you've now contacted this thing, you might as well be alien to us. Yeah. And it gives you that look of we are invading. We're not just here. We're faceless and we're, like talk about like this is et's eldritch horror right he does not if et was in this house he's looking at this and going oh no what the hell is this thing this is how um, <laughs> aliens behaved in 50s b movies they just sort of turned up yes. going and sort of reached at you just to get at you the gill man does that uh and, it and, always and yeah this is et's me, aliens it always reminds me of that twilight zone and i can't remember the name of it but there's a twilight zone episode where a woman is being tormented by little aliens running around her house and there's look like little robot things and when the last one I think is alive and about to be killed by her and they zoom in and it's a guy in a NASA suit with a US flag on his shoulder and you're like oh shit <laughs> like mm. that's that's nuts I, nice. I, I love that kind of stuff nice uh, so the, the Twilight Zone is, is just the, this cornucopia of ah moments <laughs> I love that. On a side note, since Steven Spielberg produced and directed one of the segments for Twilight Zone the movie, we are covering it on our quick review shows for Patreon, including everything that happened, unfortunately, on that movie. Also, Keys, the guy who is identifiable by his big jangly keys on his belt. Uh, oh, so that's why. Yeah. Um, <laughs> If anything, that's Steven Spielberg's avatar. And when you kind of get to know him a little bit, he's still distant, but him talking to Elliot saying, I was you, I wanted E.T. to appear, and now he's here and he's dying and I feel terrible. I'm that, that I'm glad he met you first is genuine. He's not being patronizing there. That's Steve kind of inserting himself in the movie, going, I would have a fascination with aliens as well. Clearly he does. It's a really great way of humanizing what's been terrifying up to then, but still keeping him distant enough to be just about kind of a threat. And then at the end, he's very much beside um, Mary in almost a kind of a, ah, ah, we're pairing them off way. Just, just like, it's not solid enough for them to sort of look at each other and go, say, but it's enough. And it does imply this is a decent, compassionate man. Yeah. They exist. And he has something in common with Elliot. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I always, I always liked that. I was always worried as I got older and watched it that I was going to notice something where the movie was going to change and it was going to imply that this was Elliot's dad. Like, oh, really? and I'm so glad they didn't do that. Like, it's because the fact that him and the mum never interact till the end there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That that maybe in some version of the script it was, oh, okay, so this is this is Mexico. Your, your dad was actually just off chasing aliens. Mexico. You know? <laughs> so he was down there with Agent K. We're going to have a little chat with our friend here. You fellas can hit the road. Keep on protecting us from the dangerous aliens. <laughs> That's the thing. They, they never really imply what the dad did, but because they're in new, um, new, new builds um, area of, I mean, this, this area is still being built. 
like one of like the bike chase scenes with the cops is through a section of this town that is still being assembled you know we don't get that in in my part of the country you know where there's entire areas of houses being built still it kind of we've used all the land here um but uh you know then that it's almost like was the dad like a tech guy or was he a government employee and they all got moved out there and is that why the mom and them still feel so alien and distant to their area because they just got kind of lifted and brought here yeah you know um one thing i noticed uh after halloween when uh, mary's freaking out uh she's still got the i noticed she still had the beauty mark on from her cat costume and then i noticed that it's quite a shadowy kitchen scene it's when elliot appears behind the fridge in a kind of a like swapped free tea way because he obviously got hit in the face with the fridge door um she's just wearing a sweater over her halloween costume she's been so fraught with worry she hasn't even changed and uh, it's just again a nice little touch added there also the um idea of making elliot's costume a a gaunt looking hunchback accentuates his sense of decline at that point so they don't have to uh like if his if he'd been uh, uh, painted as a red-faced devil then it would have been far more warm looking and uh it's just smart little shorthand knowing what was going to happen to him um and et in spielberg's own words is an ambassador for peace. I don't know if you remember, and like, folks, this is one of those, like, get in contact and tweet at us if you remember this. Do you remember that, like, Earth Day special in, like, 1990? You're a bit younger than me, uh, uh, Chris, so you might not remember it. it but it was uh, a bunch of uh, uh, actors uh, got together for a TV special to remind us about, uh, to, to make us very aware that the Earth was uh, in trouble. And um, Bette Midler played Mother Earth, and she was sick. Yep. Oh, now you remember I remember it? that. Okay, there you yeah, go. That, that's what did it. <laughs> and she was sick. And then there was like, oh, who can bring Mother Earth back? And E.T. was in this thing. Doc Brown was also in this thing. He came back he hit yep. all forward in time and in the DeLorean. It was kind of amazing. It's very hokey. And unfortunately, it was one of those things that, much like Captain Planet, uh, made saving the environment and caring about anything seem super hella lame to people who were even the least bit cynical. Well, fundamentally, it made it a kid's thing. Yeah. It was presented in such a way as to say saving the environment is something that children care about, but once you're a proper grown-up and you know about the economy, yeah. then it's out the window. Which is a really great way of making sure that Generation X didn't give a fuck about the environment and look where we are now. But... <laughs> E.T. himself, <laughs> but E.T. himself, as an ambassador for peace, conveys this in the film by being very slight and very gentle and very slow and very measured. And he's scared, but he's able to overcome that with curiosity. So he's he's holding these two very strong senses of curiosity and fear at the same time. He's not just scared all the time, and he has this compulsion to heal. And because he's a gardener, he clearly cares for the environment and the natural world. But the guys he's up against are not like bulldozing down houses and going, we're going to dump some sludge in the river. And it's not like an environmental message in the film in a way that rubs it in. It's just who he is. It's kind of almost... Like, if we'd learned from E.T. rather than sort of demon... Like, having people like 
um, John Lithgow in, in Santa Claus the movie being, yeah, I'm a cartoon villain. We may be, you know, after years and years of having these cartoon villains carted in front of us, maybe people wouldn't have deliberately voted for a cartoon villain to deface the earth on purpose by loosening all of those anti-dumping laws and things like that. I just want to shake up the system, you know. But it feels like there was a very light way we could have conveyed this kind of thing and a very a more concerted effort could have been made towards us all kind of sort of mucking in rather than hammering us in the face with it because it feels like hammering us in the face with it made a lot of people just switch off and they just don't care and now the uh, it's it's gone from it's not real to there's nothing we can do about it to there's nothing we could have done about it to even if there was something we could have done about it we weren't to know but ultimately, just how about follow E.T.'s, just, you know, the whole, the, the, the motif of giving a shit. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of rubbing it in myself here. No, but- that was good. I like that. <laughs> So E.T. dies, and it sustains the trauma for kids in a... This might get hard, folks. In a non-fantastical setting that resembles, to us, exactly the kind of place where most of our loved ones die. Everything gets really real. Like, it's, 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 a, it's a, a hospital. And um, Stephen is merciless in how he portrays this to us, and he sells it. To the point where he strings out E.T.'s expiration to the point where you just you finally buy into it. It's I think it's because he, he allows Henry to uh, give his speech not in a tearful way, but all and his direct instructions to him were just just say it as though E.T.'s still here. And, and just be kind of exhausted with the whole thing. That sells more than anything else, more than anything visual, or even anything uh, in terms of the music, that we've really crossed a border here and there's no going back from it, which makes the coming back from it a, a delightful surprise, but it doesn't cheapen the moments beforehand. Uh, that it's, it's a hard visual... Yeah. Um, to, to put yourself through I, uh, I I will hit on one thing you say because it is hard and, and go it, it's it's the hardest part of the movie and at four years old it's the part that I used to always have to shut off um, especially when the when they have to go in there and all like their protection strips down and they really get in there and try to save et yeah. like that, that just that even when you've never been through that situation that feels too real Um but you talk about Elliot saying goodbye to E.T., that, that whole scene. Um, it's the first time we talk about how the first half of the movie and most of the movie is Spielberg telling something only with visuals and only with music. And this is a bit of writing and acting that you earn by having everything told only with those visuals. This scene could only work with Henry Thomas's performance and the words that were written for him. Hmm. You know, and they they amplify the feeling that the movie is giving you rather than cheapening it by over exposizing 
you know what he's trying to say and it it's just perfect and it's heartbreaking and, and like you said it's merciless yeah and it's not melodramatic <sighs> which again no. sells it if 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 it had been like uh, uh, the thing that kind of brings us back from it is where uh spielberg allows elliot to be comedically melodramatic and it's no no and like he it's like he was like no just drag your fingers across that and just keep grasping to get back and there's a, a triple whammy of uh, Elliot's deception again. Just uh, Kids love seeing other kids who can run rings around adults, but the adults have to be real-feeling adults. They can't be bumbling boobs. That's why all the Home Alone uh, competitors screwed up, because they didn't make their adults feel... Like enough of a, a enough of a challenge for the kids. So the, these little snot-nosed kids, you know, are on easy mode the whole time. But Elliot's having to deceive some very nosy government types, and then as he walks past the flowers, he sees them perk back up again. And again, like the flowers are an amazing visual metaphor to just sort of keep you like they're he's ET's energy bar. So when he heals them and brings them um, back at the beginning, they sort of the flowers perk up. It's like, oh, E.T. is full of life at this point. And then when the flowers shrivel and, and Mike screams at them, no, it ties up. And, and that, again, sells it because there's no artifice there. It's just seeing, you know, flowers that were blooming die. And it's the difference between an alive world and a dead world. And... A fish being flapping on the carpet and not flapping. And so Elliot sort of is dragged past them and spots them starting to bloom again. And Keyes starts to look at them and says, do you want to take the flowers? And Elliot goes, no, just to distract him visually again and just to just amp it up. And then the triple whammy is when he tells Mike in the little sort of... uh, intermediary area and Mike leaps with joy and bangs his head. It's just, uh, usually obviously (laughs) banging your head isn't funny, but we need it so much at this point. It's just, it's a wonderful way of getting kids back on board. And again, if you don't sell the joy of these moments, the kids are going to have the taste, the bitter taste of death still in their mouths. You need to give them that sweetness. And then you, you follow that up with this soaring um, you know, thrilling John Williams as the kids outwardly defy the adults in a way that the adults are now very aware of and these government types are chasing after the kids and just completely failing to catch them and so, you know, the idea of kids on bikes out, like, first off like, we've stole your van, it's ours now <laughs> That's a brilliant moment of kid power, which is, again, not patronizing, especially since Mike's like, I've never driven forwards before, <laughs> which is I a great touch. That. <laughs> and they even set up the fact that Mike can kind of drive by having him sort of reverse out uh, um, earlier in the film. So it's kids on bikes, then the adults up the stakes by bringing out friggin' shotguns. So E.T.'s like, right, okay, so the way to deal with that is if we can fly. So that sort of gives you the sort of the, the flying bikes thing. And, and even though the teenagers aren't specifically, like uh, Mike's friends are not, you know, m- helping directly, it's the fact that they were so cynical at the beginning and now give a shit about E.T. that, that it's, you know, it's, it's like that can sell this moment it just if it was just Elliot and E.T. on on their own or maybe just with Mike it would feel like less of a huge moment but because it's all the kids together that draws the audience in across the globe going yes we're gonna do this and 
That's because it brings everyone back to childhood. You know, effectively, you're all the ones on the bikes. You don't want to be the grown-ups holding the shotguns. You want to be the ones helping E.T. And, and that's why the end is so humble. So Keys is there just not trying to grab E.T., just watching this amazing Ralph Macquarie spaceship with this mirrored surface that I never noticed before until I saw it in 4K, just sort of landing yeah. and being amazed by it. And, the, and just witnessing and not trying to meddle or control and you know this allow this frees up the moment to just be about you know saying goodbye you know you mentioned the spaceship and you mentioned the design and i i I mentioned before this movie has one of the most consistent visual through lines of any movie i've ever seen every shot looks organic looks like it, it it looks like you've just turned your head and looked um, and you're looking through the same lens. There's this very, very little that feels artificial about the film, even though so much of it is, right? And I love how coming out of Close Encounters, even the light design is the same and everything. The ship is even a more comforting, more um, a more uh, nature-driven. It looks like a big pine cone, you know, almost like kind of thing, instead of kind of the more sharp-edged, bigger more menacing looking ships from close encounters yeah. and i uh it's great that coming from the same director they can hit you know that's the movie for the you know midlife crisis guy that doesn't really find a fit on earth and this is the movie for a kid who's trying to find his footing on earth mm. you know see what it means to grow up and what it means to empathize and what it means to you know have real emotion and it takes someone not from here to show him that and saying goodbye to E.T. is harder than probably saying goodbye to his dad was. You know, because his dad left him, but left him and the family for unknown reasons, but he still stays in communication with him, but he's not really a part of his life. But E.T. kind of um, showed Elliot who he was going to be. And then he doesn't have him anymore. And that's unbelievably heavy and so beautifully put to screen so soon after we you know we had a horrible death we had to make it through in the movie right and you know it 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 only amplifies those feelings rather than um betraying them or anything this isn't you know your classic steven spielberg went for the happy ending and it feels like a betrayal thing that people like to say about some of his films this is 100 percent earned from from frame one to the last frame and it it it's just a beautiful film. My favourite element of this sort of finale is the simplicity of the communication between Elliot and E.T. They exchange a couple of words and that's all that's necessary, but you can see in their gestures and in their expressions what they mean by this. And the entire sentence is, I wish you could come but I know you can't. And Elliot's response being, I wish you could stay, but I know you can't. But the only words that are actually exchanged are come and stay. But there's no arguing. Mm-hmm. Again, because E.T. doesn't argue. No, I, It does make me feel a little bit actually like this, the, the deliberate and distinct separation between the death and then there's there's a little bit of a period for recovery and of course in the context of the story he comes back but then they have to say goodbye anyway and it 
made me think of two things, one of which may be a little bit hyperbolic, but, you know, bear with me on this. Um, One is the concept of the funeral, where somebody dies, but you don't say your farewells immediately. There is a little bit of time uh, to kind of get used to the idea that they are gone. And then a often spiritual evoking of them again so that you can say goodbye to them properly but also Jesus I remember another gentle visitor from the heavens he came in peace and then died only to come back to life and his name was E.T. the extraterrestrial (laughs) I love that little guy But, and for some reason, In the Garden of Eden is now playing on an organ. <laughs> Wait a minute, that sounds like rock and or roll. Or roll. But I, I love just to go back to what you'd said about the design on the uh, the ships and comparing this one to uh, the one that's in Close Encounters, Chris. The uh, E.T.'s vessel is cozy. Mm. It's round. It's Homey. There's it's, plants inside yeah, from exactly. various there's, different places. There's something very sort of nurturing Organic, about yeah. it. Whereas the Close Encounter ship is vast and white and sparse and looks quite clinical. And you can kind of envision they may have labs and things inside. Oh, he got probed <laughs> within an inch of his life. There, I just, yeah, I, the sequel... The sequel to Close Encounters is Fire in the Sky. (laughs) (laughs) Inside that ship, did they have a setup like these agents had in Elliot's house? And they had zip-up tents and helmets and things, and Richard Dreyfuss is going on a table somewhere. That's for the super special edition. (laughs) (laughs) To round off, there, there are children's stories that are designed to teach children that death is a natural part of life. Charlotte's Web springs to mind just in terms of like hitting you incredibly hard with a death that the person who is leaving accepts and tells the person who who is going to be left behind this is the way it's meant to be and that could have been E.T. but it wouldn't have felt natural because of the circumstances of the way E.T. dies And this is far more naturally a story about being able to say goodbye to someone who's going to be away forever, but will still be alive and you will still be connected emotionally. And his, I'll be right here, he's pointing to Elliot's brain, saying in the memories rather than just the heart. It's a a wonderful way of accepting, you know, sometimes we just are never going to see certain people again. Usually that uh, comes with people who, you know, are parted from us by distance. And obviously it's easier now with things like Skype to be able to um, get back in contact with them. But uh, sometimes you do just, you know, lose somebody like that. And it's not to death. My, uh, My grandparents moved to New Zealand when I was 12. And I was very close to them and really enjoyed spending time with them and that felt like saying goodbye forever to them like they were going into the west yeah and oof i haven't ever seen them again 
all. And, oh God, sorry. Although, although my Nana is still alive, it's highly unlikely that I will ever see her again. And my granddad died in 2010. But that, that death felt a little, I don't know, it didn't feel weird at the time, but he was the first relative that I'd been close to and lost. But it felt like I'd kind of already said goodbye to him and then got another 14, 15 years of being able to write to him in heaven, (laughs) which sounds really ridiculous. But it meant that it, it kind of, it, stretched the parting out in such a way that actually made it, or at least the way it felt to me, much easier to manage. Because the hard part had already been done, but knowing he was still alive and being able to have some contact with him, disparate though it was, meant that 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 kind of wrenching sense didn't happen. So it it hurt a lot less than I think it, it probably could have. And I lost two other grandparents, in, my other two grandparents, in very quick succession a year or two ago. And that felt very, very different because they were there and then they were gone. And gone, gone. Um, and it was, a, it was a very different experience. Having that elongated goodbye, knowing that they were out there somewhere, even if I wasn't ever actually going to be in the same place as them, was a very comforting thing. E.T. offers us a feeling like the universe is less intimidating and huge than we might think, that love and empathy are such powerful forces they can bind us together across distance, across time, even through death. It's a triumphant clarion call for nurturing and support. Even the position bad guys don't want E.T. to die, and as such, we in the audience, the whole world over, were united as one, willing him to be able to get home, but knowing it meant saying goodbye. There has never been a sequel to E.T., and that is absolutely right. For everything we can gain from this story, all we need to do is revisit and remind ourselves of what is truly important. I don't, I don't think aliens should be taller than people, you know, I, I, I like the idea that they're like children and, and that was, they were small and, they were certainly small and close encounters and I in fact used little girls in costumes to play all the different ETs in close encounters. Um, and I, it, it's easy for kids to relate to because it's one of them. ET came into Elliot's life and, and after, after you get to know them, after they start to bond with each other, you know, uh, they're kind of inseparable, they're both like children who both have needs. Elliot has a need that E.T. can fulfill, and E.T. has a need that Elliot can help him with to get home. And Elliot also needs to get home. So it's kind of these, these two very similar stories on the same path. Elliot doesn't have a father. His father has divorced his mother and is off in Mexico with Sally. And he's a, he, he's a, he's a lost child. He's, he's going to fall off the face of the earth if, 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 he, if he's not rescued. This is a rescue movie. I always thought E.T. was a movie about a double rescue. E.T. saves Elliot, Elliot saves E.T. And a special thanks to those folks who rescue us every week. Our $15 patrons who get sponsor credit every episode. Thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, 
Kevin Bay, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosansky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. So, Chris, where can these fine people find your best work? Oh, my lord. Um, <clears throat> first, I... I is there a way to reach through a phone and hug somebody? Um, <laughs> I, uh, uh, Sharon, that was... I'll hug her for It was you. so wonderful to hear you share that. But, oh, man. Um, that's a hard thing to follow up with my silly stuff. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, the, you can find me on um, on my Libsyn page, which is the Chippa Made This. Um, and that's the name I use everywhere. Twitter, um on YouTube is Chris Chipman. Uh, but I do the Chipman brothers tangent with my brother, movie Bob. You may have heard of him, um, shooting the shit with Chippa, which is very similar to that show. But I talk to everybody else. Um, the Talkbuster podcast where we talk about working at blockbuster video and other places that are now long gone from the video rental retail world and creating geeks, a parenting podcast of great responsibility with my wife, um, Sarah. Um, we share things from our childhood, um, with each other and discuss if they're worth sharing or if they've changed or if the implications of if they're even okay for, for our children in the um, nowadays world and that kind of stuff. And we also have started having guests and things on that show. I also do a video log on my YouTube, um, Chippa in the Third Person. We just recently ran through um, all 24 of a brewery advent calendar that we got for uh, a pre-Christmas gift for each other. That was a lot of fun so that you can see us drinking those and talking about them and being uh, um, uh, interrupted by our children and stuff during it's a lot of fun. So, <laughs> oh, uh, I was thinking of the that, same that, thing. Sharon started doing that little dance from that kid who busted in on the guys doing the newscast. I just started yes. dancing around in the background. And then the, uh, uh, this is the mom just sort of comes barreling in. <laughs> And um, if you if you haven't heard me on School of Movies before, you can check out the Jaws episode, and I'm sure there'll be plenty more because I I love coming on here. Oh, Jaws is essential listening now, folks. Um, I, Chris has asked to be on our AI show, and it seems like there's an awful <laughs> gulf between ET and AI. Just that's twenty years. So, uh, like, I'm fairly certain we can get him on again if we if we ask him very very nicely. Oh yes. <laughs> I don't know why, like, why these this these last two shows were so great. I mean, like, obviously, extreme fondness for the material, the richness of what we're dealing with, just the the sense of you know warmth and and the that the just the incredible amount of meat we've got to chew through, and then the it's yeah, this is a good series so far, liking it. Um, and we will be back with more Spielberg soon. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And due to a drunken fracas involving two dozen escaped frogs, school's out.
<laughs> drunken fracas. I love it. Mummy, there was a drunken fracas at school today. 